Join me in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10. Thank you so much for sharing those prayer items, and we will take those seriously and spend some time in prayer in a few moments. But join me in the, about the middle of Mark chapter 10. If you don't have sermon notes, fellas, we'll make sure you have those. Just raise your hand. When we were on vacation a few weeks back, uh, we went to a ghost town out in the western area of Montana. And when we got to this western ghost town, it was set up so that there were some people at these different places. And though it was a ghost town, they were demonstrating a variety of different things. There was somebody who was doing basket weaving. You could sit there and ask them how they used to make the baskets, how they would deal with different types of reeds and different things of that. And then we went to this shop. I forget the exact words or the terms for the one fellow shop, but it was basically an alchemist that was dealing dealing with trying to deal with people's uh, gold findings, their mining findings, and that they would do, and he explained the chemical process that they would go through a couple days to try to figure out exactly was it pure gold, and then, you know, how much was it worth, and all those things. Then we went to another shop, and then the other shop, this woman had the spinning wheels, and she was in the attire and the garb of the 1800s in the, in the Old West, and she was talking about how they would use different products and that they would create the different, you know, the, the spools of fabric and threads and they would even use reeds and they would use different things that they would find. And we walked away in our conversation between the four of us as we were walking away is, boy, how did people figure this stuff out? You know, because we think we are the advanced society and we are the most intelligent and we have arrived as a human race that we are really high on the... Uh, the innate scale of intelligence and wisdom. But I'm often amazed at how did people in generations and centuries past, how did they figure out how to use some of those products? How did they figure out the natural components of the different chemicals and, you know, putting things together? And and I'm amazed by this. I was just doing some reading on Handel and how he put the, the whole classical piece of Messiah together in such a short time under the pressure that he was. And, and I'm amazed and I'm just at times odd to think about how previous generations, going back over an extended period of time, we often think that they were less intelligent than us, that they had less innate ability. I personally think just the opposite, that those individuals were highly intelligent. If they were taking some of our natural skills tests that without the technology we can beat them that way but there was some intelligent people to think through the the political philosophies that they did in the 16-1700s to go back to the very beginning of the Bible they were doing all type of steel and and foundry work in the very first few generations of, of human race there was a lot of intelligent people being able to discover and explore and to find out a lot of this natural chemicals or not we a couple of us were talking about it, and one person said they just happened to see the TV program about some tribe and their natural intelligence, how they were able to find that this certain plant had all kinds of benefits to them, but they talked about how when they first found this plant and started working with it, that they, they found that this plant had some toxicity to it, and it caused a couple people to die, and so they wanted to figure out how to work with that, and they thought it would have some good products uh, use and so what they did is they mixed it with some other items, they mixed it with some other items, and then they would do a trial and error with some peoples in their tribe until they got the right combination that it wasn't deadly. But in the meantime, they had this person and this person. They went through four or five deaths 
to finally figure it out. Now I question that type of intelligence that says we're going to work with this plant and you're going to be the guinea pig. You know, that, that baffles my mind too. I would use an animal. I'd use something different than a, than a human being. And though I know that there was great intelligence and even in the early church period there are moments that they kind of did some things that I questioned the intelligence. Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 10 is one of those moments where the, dis- the disciples, the apostles, they are not giving a shining moment. They are not standing out as, oh, look at how bright they were. Look at how they caught the teachings of Jesus so quickly. Um, no, when we come to Mark chapter 10 and read through the story, we go, duh, Jesus has been saying this several times and you still didn't get it. Let me t- point out what I'm talking about. Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10 are basically one major section. Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. He's teaching his final time of teaching the disciples and giving them their last uh, semester, if you would, of preparation before he's going to be leaving. And re- when he's doing that, there are three times, one in Mark 8, one in Mark 9, one in Mark 10, where Jesus predicts. He predicts his passion and his resurrection. You find that in Mark chapter 8. So just setting this is all to help us to make sure we're all on the same page. Mark chapter 8, jump all the way down to verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. He talks about that in Mark chapter 9. This is now several days later. How long? We're not exactly sure. But we jump down into chapter 9, verse 31. He taught his disciples said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. They shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise again the third day. Then they, he mentions it again in Mark chapter 10. We jump down to verse 33. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests, the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and then they shall deliver him to the Gentiles. So he's talking about what happens, when it happens, who is going to be doing this to him, and he's very clear. All three times he says he's going to suffer, he's going to die. All three times he said he's going to resurrect. All three times there is a follow-up to that. In all three of the stories, the disciples act very foolishly. They, they respond with, with what I'm going to call foolish, their foolish response in chapter 8. When he said that I'm going to go down and die, Mark, I'm sorry, Mark, yeah, Mark records Peter's response immediately thereafter. Peter says, "You will not go down to Jerusalem. I won't let it happen." Jesus has to turn to him and rebuke him and say, "Get the behind me, Satan." That's the occasion in Mark chapter nine where he has just mentioned again. We read in Mark chapter 9 what the disciples respond. Soon as they have heard that, then we read a couple of verses later, Jesus asks, what were you arguing about on the road? And they, uh, you know, they sheepishly don't respond. They hold their peace. And it's stated in verse 34, they were arguing over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Mark chapter 10, he tells them, and right after he tells them is when James and John comes and said, say to him, Lord, can we have the best seats in the house in your kingdom. There, all three times, he makes the prediction, all three times, the, re, the response of the disciples is very self-centered, not focused on, what about you, Jesus? We care, you know, exactly what happens, you know, except for Peter's initial response. The others are all about, what do we get out of it? Then there is a third thing that happens in all three accounts. Jesus reveals, they respond foolishly, and then Jesus has to rebuke them, or he he once again instructs them in a very important lesson. The lesson in all three cases that follows right after that is a lesson on humility. 
a lesson on what is true discipleship and what does it mean to serve other people. It happens in all three accounts. You see, the reason is because even though these apostles, these disciples, were clever men, brilliant men, they knew some things about Christ. You are the Son of Man. You are the one that was promised. They understood that. And they're catching it. They had an ongoing problem amongst themselves. Actually, they had three ongoing problems. They had three areas that they were struggling with, and one of them is their personal conflicts with one another. It wasn't easy for them to get along. They kept on having personal conflicts, arguing over who's the greatest. We're going to see it again tonight. Soon as James and John ask the question, the other ten respond in anger and quite indignant. So they, they struggle with personal conflicts with one another. They struggle with the servant's mindset. They don't fully understand what does it mean to be a servant. And each time he has to give them instruction. Here is what a servant is all about. And the one thing they don't seem to comprehend is that they don't fully seem to comprehend, comprehend the humility, the passion, the sacrifice, the humility of Jesus Christ. They don't quite get it. Now, there are some things in our life that we, with all of our technology and all of our skill and our innate abilities, there are some things that's okay that some of us don't get. There are some things that I don't get. When it comes to technic, you know, technical things with computers and the iPads and the iPhones, I don't care if I ever get it, okay? Um, you know, I can get by, but some of you are absolutely brilliant. I watch how you can do this type stuff, and it's like, wow, that's great. But I don't take the time to, to do it. There are some things that some of you are really, really good at, and that is fixing things. You have this mechanical ability that you can just, you know, look at something, see it, and you can resolve the problem, come up with, with to fix it. I can't. There are some of you that have this wonderful ability to create, to sew, to do cooking. That's great. That's wonderful. Some of us, you wouldn't want to eat it if we made it. There are some of you who have this great skill musically. You can pick up any piece and you can sing it or you can play the instruments. Others of us struggle with a radio. Some people have great abilities, great natural, and, and, and I don't, and I'm okay with that. But I can't be okay with saying, I don't get this lesson. We cannot, none of us can say, it's okay that we'll let somebody else be really good at it. No. When it comes to understanding true discipleship and true servanthood, we must get this lesson. Jesus was so insistent upon it that with his 12 disciples, he repeats it multiple times in a short period of time. Paul writes about these truths. The idea of having the mind of Christ, that mind which was in Christ that ought to be in you as well, that he who was equal with God thought it not robbery to be equal, he became a servant and we are to have that same mindset. So I need to, you need to. It doesn't make any difference if we can't cook, can't fix, can't play an instrument, but we better know how to become a servant. What is required to become a real servant? Let's pick up the story in Mark chapter 10. And as we catch the scene, let's get the, the whole setting. Verse 32. They're on their way going up to Jerusalem. Jesus went before them and they were amazed. The word is they were fearful. It's not that they were, oh, wow. They, it's like, uh-oh. 
type of an amazement. The disciples are getting a little bit of this idea that Jesus is headed for Jerusalem. There's trouble ahead. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them and said, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes. And they shall condemn him to death. They shall deliver him to the Gentiles. They shall mock him, shall scourge him, shall spit upon him, shall kill him. The third day he shall rise again. I'm going to, I think I want to come back to this on Sunday evening. Then it goes on, verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Master, we would that you would allow us, or do for us, whatsoever we should desire. He said unto them, What would you that I should do to you? Now, Matthew 20 gives us a little bit of different information. Not a contradiction, but a different aspect. According to Matthew 20, who is the one that spoke on behalf of these men, first of all? Their mother. Their mother. But obviously they are all three in cahoots. She is speaking and saying, Lord, would you give me something I'm, re- I'm requesting? It talks about how she kneels before him. She worships. She asks. He says, what was it that you would want? She gives the same request. And in both accounts, he says to the, um, to the gentleman, he says, uh, when they say, grant unto us that we may sit, one on your right hand, one on the other, he turns in Matthew 20 and says to them, you know not what you ask. Can you drink of the cup? basically are you ready for this and they both in both accounts the boys respond they're fully aware what mom's asking they're involved with the with the uh the whole lesson all together and so when what we have here is that they're asking if they can be in the primary seats now some individuals respond and say hey listen this text shows that they had great faith And there are some who advocate for them. That they say what they're asking is something very commendable because it's a display of faith. How would you see a display of faith on their their part? At all? Do you think that those authors are blowing some smoke? It might be, might be helpful if you go back to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18 records a conversation Jesus had with them shortly before this conversation recorded. Actually, Matthew 19, I'm sorry. Matthew 19, and jump down to verse 28. Matthew 19, verse 28, which happens just shortly before them asking about the best seats. Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that you which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall what? What's he promising those men in particular? They shall sit upon the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes in Israel. And so he's made a very specific promise to these men that they are going to be rewarded with the opportunity to be on thrones and be elevated, the 12 of them in particular. And so some would respond by saying, well, what they're doing in this passage is showing their faith that they're believing Jesus. So we are going to sit on thrones. Can we have the thrones closest to you? Can we have the more preeminent thrones? And yet we would understand and say, yes, that may be an expression of faith, but more more likely, and what the the response of Jesus in this passage, it's it's more of an expression of selfishness, of pride on their part, which isn't a surprise for you and me. Because it was these three, these two are part of the three who were the inner crowd. These two were part of those who went and told the man who was casting out demons, you need to stop because you're not part of us. These were part of the group that were arguing which of them was going to be the greatest. And now they just come very quickly and right to the very forefront and they say to Jesus with their mom at their, at their side, would you allow us to be the greatest of the twelve? 
And so there's no hesitation on their part. They're being motivated by their own personal desires to get, the, uh, to get themselves elevated, to get them noticed. In other words, this is the status that they wanted. They wanted to be preeminent. They wanted to be known. If they were living in modern day, they would probably make sure that they had the most friends that anybody could possibly have on the Facebook. They would want to make sure that they had the titles, that they had the recognition, that they would be noticed amongst the crowd of those who would be calling themselves followers. They might even be the, at this moment, they might have been the individuals who would want the special titles, the special offices, the special elevation to be able to be recognized. They wanted that from Jesus Christ and went directly to him and said, this is what we want. This is what we are desiring. We are desiring to be recognized. We are desiring to be preeminent, to be prominent. And Jesus' response to them is interesting. Jesus says to these gentlemen, he says, you don't even know what you're asking for in verse, in verse 38. In other words, you're praying for something, but you don't even know how dangerous your prayer is. You guys are asking for something. And then he goes on and he makes the comment. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? There, there's multiple different ideas, but I think that these clearly are what Jesus are ta- is talking about. When he talks about the cup, we know that there was a cup of blessing and a lot of the different ceremonies, the Passover meal that is coming up in just weeks from this time, there's multiple cups of blessings. But there is also mentioned in a variety of different texts in the Old Testament the idea of a cup. That wasn't a blessing. In fact, when people would travel towards Jerusalem, one of the things that they would read, one of the things that they would talk about, one of the things that they would be preeminent in their mind and would be repeated over and over were what we call the servant portions of scriptures, the, the psalms, the, the uh, passages about the suffering servant. They thought it meant Israel, and so they would refer to this frequently. Isaiah 50 through 53 was one section of scripture that was read frequently at this time, that was talked about frequently. Thinking of that text at that moment in that time as they're journeying to Jerusalem, and this would be a text that they would refer to, go to that text with me and notice what it talks about in a cup in Isaiah chapter 51. In Isaiah 51, there's a cup that's referenced in this passage by, written by Isaiah about the suffering servant, the Messiah, that Israel and the Jews often th- thought it talked about them. But in Isaiah 51, there's a, pa- there's a text that is at length talking about a cup that people would have to drink. Sometimes it's called the dredge. And here we have it in Isaiah 51. I'm jumping down to verse 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the the Lord the cup of his what? His fury, his wrath. You have drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she hath brought forth, neither is there any that takes her by the hand of all the sons that she hath brought up. These two things are come unto thee, who shall be sorry for thee, desolation, destruction, famine, sword, by whom I shall comfort thee. Thy sons have fainted. They lie at the head of the streets as a wild bull in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore hear now this, thou afflicted, drunken, be not with wine. Thus saith the Lord, the Lord, thy God, that pleads the cause of the people. Behold, I have taken out of thy hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it, but I will put into you the hand. He goes on, talks about how he's going to replace it. That Psalm chapter 78 talks about the, or 75 talks about this as well. It talks about the cup of God's wrath. It's that same cup that Jesus is referring to, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, remove this cup from me. 
It's the idea of the wrath, the suffering, the punishment that God would have, the judgment if you would. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, are you two really, you really think you're ready for this? Do you realize that the road to glory is going down a path of suffering? And that's what you want. You want the glory. You want to share it with me. But for me to get there, I have to drink from a cup. You're going to share this cup with me? You're going to be able to drink of this cup of the wrath, the judgment, the sufferings that God has planned for me? And then he says, you're going to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? I don't think he's referring to John the Baptist baptism, but he's talking about that which would overwhelm, that, that which would immerse them in the sufferings and in the trials and the difficulties that Jesus has ahead, that he is going to be facing. Again, the sufferings, the, 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 uh, the sacrifice that he is going to make. And he's saying, are you men really? You, really, you want to be on these thrones of glory. You think you're ready for this. You, you think that, that you're going to be able to get to that point of glory without any difficulties whatsoever. You're ready to drink of of persecution. You're ready to be overcome and overwhelmed and deluged with all kinds of affliction and all kinds of threats. And their response is interesting because when Jesus asked them this question, they extreme, with extreme confidence, they say to him, verse 39, we can. We can. Now, it, it doesn't say this in the text. But I can't help envisioning in my own mind, and, and forgive me if, you, if I'm implying something that is irreverent, but I can't help but think that Jesus may have had a really significant pause at this moment. And looking at them with that look like, I hear you, but you don't really know what you're saying. And then he responds to them and he makes the prediction. He says, you shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. This is a prediction, right? That they're going to suffer. Does James suffer? Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. James is the first church leader next to Stephen, but as the first of the apostles to be martyred. Does John ever suffer any type of persecution? Revelation chapter 1. Where is he writing from? The Isle of Patmos. After he's been boiled, he's been exiled now to this island, they will suffer persecution for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, okay, you want these seats of glory, you don't realize what you're asking, but since you're willing, you know, it's going to happen. And then he adds to it, but to sit on my right hand and on my left hand, that's not mine to give, that's up to the Father. He's going to be able to reward that, not me. And so Jesus makes it very clear to them, this is the status you want. This status is something that you're seeking after, and yet the question is, do, do you guys really understand what you're after? Is this all about being pre preeminent above other people? Is, is your Christianity, is my Christianity, motivated by the fact that we want status? We want recognition. Are there some people who give so they are recognized? Well, we see that in the book of Acts, do we not? Ananias and Sapphira... Um, yeah, they gave because they wanted everybody to see what they were doing and applaud them. Do we ever have any others who are in church and involved in leadership for the sake of being able to be preeminent? Are there other, others like Diotrephes that are mentioned? Are there in church history, are there stories of individuals who it was all about serving for self-motivation? Self-propagation. Well, that's what he's saying. This isn't where you and I should be. In fact, the next section of this story, if we want to outline it this way, we're going to say this is the status they didn't want. 
The status they wanted was preeminence. The status they didn't want is what Jesus is going to tell them about. Look what happens. When the ten heard it, they heard them asking this question, they began to be much displeased with James and John. They're angry. They're upset. How dare you guys? You're having your mom even ask. What a bunch of sissies. You know, what, are you, what are you doing? And they be, they're, they're very upset. And Jesus' response is this. He calls them to him and says unto them, the idea is more than just James and John. He's calling the entire group. And he makes some observations. You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And their great ones exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be, among, it shall not be this way among you. He, he's going to point out that, you guys know this, you know how the Gentiles operate. How do the Gentiles operate when it comes to leadership? When it comes to authority. Think about it. They're Jews. They're the, the Gentiles in authority, who's he referring to that they would know? The Romans. How do the Romans treat other people? Those in authority. Those who have power. Like dirt. Do, do, they, do, do you remember the leader at this time? One of the main leaders is Herod. Do you remember how much Herod cares for the people? That Herod, we've already seen that illustrated when Herod is all about his party time. Herod is all about, you know, gratifying those who are with him and his own whims and his own desires. And, and giving out favors based upon somebody exciting his own lusts. That even kills the prophet that the people said was a prophet. That's the type of leadership that he's referring. He says, the Gentiles are like this. The Gentile leadership, they're all about who? The people? No. Who are they about? Themselves. And keeping themselves in power. And making themselves wealthy. And satisfying themselves. And the more wealthy, the more power that, are, that one of these Gentile leaders has, the more people he has serve him. Do whatever he wants. That he can step on. That he can pounce upon. And so he's basically, he's going to make this contrast. This contrast between the world that they know, that leadership is about self-gratification. Leadership is about power. Leadership is about uh, their own authority, their own pocket. But he says, this, this isn't going to be where you guys are at. You aren't supposed to be this way. You're supposed to be totally different. He goes on, he makes this comment. It shall, but so shall it not be among you, but whoever, whosoever will be great among you, that any of you, any one of you, this applies to. Who would ever be great among you shall be your diakonos, your table waiter, your servant who is ready to run and get somebody else's order at the, at the restaurant, come, bring it to them, and make sure that their cup is filled, make sure that their plate is full, make sure that everything that they would like is taken care of. And he goes on, he makes the next comment, and he repeats it. And whoever of you, whosoever of you, excuse me, will be the chief, shall be the doulos, the doulos is a slave, the lowliest of slaves, the one who washes the feet, the one who does the, the dishes, the one who does the, you know, the diaper changing, the cleaning the clothes, the, the you know, cleaning out the muck that would be in the barn. He is saying, this is what you should strive for. Listen, folk, this is totally against our nature. Who would want to stand up and say, my goal in life is, be, is wanting to be somebody else's slave? My goal in life is to serve others. That's my, that's my primary goal. I want to be a servant. Well, that wouldn't be in that day. And it's very unlikely it happens in this day. That this is the motivation. And yet Jesus says, this is where you and I are supposed to be at. Whoever. 
Whoever wants to be an individual that Jesus would consider the chief, Jesus would consider to be able to sit at these seats and get primary recognition, that Jesus would look at and say, you've done a, well done, uh, you know, done a good job, well done thou, good and faithful servant, is somebody who has a mindset that they're all about serving other people, that they're all about elevating others, that they're all about meeting the needs of other individuals. And Jesus makes it very, very clear that this is the status that he wants among them. And so he makes it this, this declaration to them. And then he goes on and he gives them the status that they need to adopt. The status that they need to adopt. And he makes one of those most profound statements in all of Scripture. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And he uses a title that is a very significant title. Son of Man is an Old Testament title coming out of the book of Daniel that's talking about the idea of that one who would come to rule and reign. The Son of Man is clearly defining that we're talking about a human being. Not an animal, not, an in, not some substitute in the sense of some sacrifice that could be through crops or, or some type of other creature, but there's a human being. This human being is clearly, as the Jews would know, this is a human being that is sent by God, a messenger of God. This is the human being, the Son of Man, who is going to, as Daniel makes clear, be the world ruler one day when the kingdom of God is set up. So this is a preeminent character. This is the greatest of human beings when he uses the phrase son of man. They would understand. The greatest of all human beings. He says, okay, the greatest, even the son of man, the greatest of all people came. He's referring to himself. We all know that. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom. And we all know what he's talking about here. He's talking about that ransom literally means a payment to free a slave, a payment to free somebody who is in prison. He makes it very clear that the payment was his own life. He makes it very clear that this is being done willingly, joyfully. He gave, he came, he wasn't pushed, he wasn't forced. He's making, making all these statements that this is a tremendous passage about salvation. Tremendous passage about the substitutionary work of Christ. But that's not what in the context it's all about. In the context it's all about an example of servanthood. An example of somebody who is the greatest human being willing to make great sacrifice. The greatest of sacrifices. We know Jesus as a servant he would go and touch the unclean. We know he would take time in his busy schedule for people who had great needs, even though he was exhausted, even though it was his rest period, even though they were in the wilderness to get away from the crowds, he would be moved with compassion. We know that he would serve in such a way that he would even pay temple taxes without, without you know, rebellion, without rebuke, to a temple that he himself owned. We know that he would submit to authorities, that he would obey the authorities as a servant, even though he was the ultimate authority over them. We know that he had a servant's mindset that he would wash the feet of the disciples when they should have been washing his feet. We know that he as a servant would minister to widows, he would minister to the children that others said, get away. We know that Jesus, this greatest of all human beings, he would take time to pray all night long for others as a, as a means of serving those individuals. We know that he would take his time, he would minister, he'd be patient. He was compassionate. All those ideas of servanthood. And then he says, but the greatest thing that the Son of Man did, he gave his life. 
He willingly gave his own life, to blood, breath, and blood to be able to do and meet the needs of individuals. And he's concluding his conversation by saying, this is what you guys are supposed to do. Oh, you can't be the sacrificial substitute for other people. We understand that part. But we can definitely be the one who would minister, who would become a servant to other individuals, who would willingly give up time, willingly go to people who are unlovely, willingly give up some of that free moment when, when the pressure's on, being patient, being compassionate, helping out when people are in real difficult moments. He says, that's what I want of you. That's what I've done. That's the example that I've set. And so Jesus stops right there. It's a hanging argument now. It's a hanging chad to decide what are you guys going to do with your vote? What are you going to do with your decision? Are you disciples going to do exactly what? Are you going to continue to stand here and argue who's the greatest? Are you going to continue to have you know, conflicts develop? Or you as a servant are going to say, let's live peaceably with all men and let's put aside the conflict about which one of us gets the preeminence and predominance. What a challenging lesson. A lesson that they had a real tough time learning. And, I, and I, I've got to be frank. I have a tough time learning this lesson. From day to day to day, to just stop and say, am I really a servant the way Jesus would want me to be a servant? I find myself probably unlike you, but I find myself protective of my schedule. I find myself protective of my plans. I find myself protective of my finances. Yeah, I'll, give, I'll tithe and do those things, but when all of a sudden if I see somebody in great need... It's a real easy way to just say, well, somebody else should do something about that. I find myself in a battle constantly, practicing servanthood the way that I'm supposed to be serving my wife, the way I'm supposed to be serving my family, the way I'm supposed to be serving at my workplace. A servant in their workplace is supposed to be like Jesus Christ, doing the work that God has given us as unto the Lord. May I ask you a simple question? The people that you work with, do they see within your spirit, do they see with your attitude, the way that you come to work, do they see you doing this for God with joyfulness, so much so that they would even want what you have when it comes to Christianity? When it comes to worship, when it comes to going and visiting the widows, when it comes to going out of our way to help somebody who is laid up and with an illness, we can all find excuses for why we have such busy schedules. But serving one another is what Jesus is talking about. Having a spirit of, of wanting to meet needs, humbly, servant-like, and minister to other people. I will gladly minister to my family, but what about the body of Christ? For me, this is a lesson that could be preached every single week. And Jesus seemed to have done it with his disciples, his apostles, multiple times. Maybe they were just as dense as I am. That they needed to be hearing this time and time and time again to get the idea that the humility of Jesus Christ was not only to provide the ransom, which it was,
but to provide us an example of how we're to treat one another. We talked about intelligence. Let's grade ourselves. A, B, C, D, F. How you doing when it comes to servanthood? 101. These guys didn't get it. Hopefully we do.